How are we doing? Hey, it's good to be back with you. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Doug spoke because I hadn't had a break, I don't think, since uh, maybe March or something like that. So Doug spoke a couple of weeks ago, and then we had Serve Sunday last week, and so it's good to be back with you. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Lawrence Free Methodist, and again, Doug's already said this, but if you're visiting us, uh, you're a special guest, and we're just super excited uh, that you're here today. And again, we'd love to know that you were here, and so you can let us know that by just dropping that connection card in the faith box. Um, if you've been around here for a while, we like to recognize volunteers uh, from time to time. We try to do this every single month. We've got <clears throat> lots of people in our church that do lots of things behind the scenes. In fact, we just couldn't do what we do each and every week, whether it's on Sundays or some of our midweek ministries, uh, without people in our church who've been equipped and trained and released to do ministry. And so we've got lots and lots of volunteers. And so we want to recognize uh, a special person this morning. And so I lost track of her. Um, uh, help me uh, welcome Barb Knocken. Come here, Barb. Are we freezing you out? Okay. He's got a little Sean. I'm sweating to death and Barb's covering up. Hey, you know, since I've been here and I've just been here a little over a year, uh, Barb's up here a lot uh, throughout the week. I mean, you just wouldn't see the things that she does. Uh, she cleans up a lot around here, especially when we leave the kitchen messy. Uh, Barb goes down there every like quarter or so, every few months and just throws lots of stuff away and cleans it up and tidies it up and always makes sure that things are in working order. She actually fills in in our office and answers the phones and does admin stuff for us from time to time. She works down in the children's ministry. What else do you, she runs the joint, apparently. <laughs> she does funerals. She organizes food for all that kind of stuff and wedding receptions and th those sort of things. And so um, all kinds of stuff that happens around here. And you can preach someday. She just asked if she could preach someday. So you can, right now, in fact, go ahead. I'll just sit down. Um, anyway, Barb, because of everything that you do around here, we just literally, we couldn't do what we do uh, around here without people like you. And we are so grateful uh, to you and your ministry. It's a ministry that you have here. And so we're, we're, uh, we're grateful for you. And this is just a small token of our appreciation. So thank you so much for everything you do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, that's, that's awesome. Hey, um, two, and if you weren't here last week, Serve Sunday, just let me say a, a quick word about that. Uh, man, what an amazing Sunday it was. We, we didn't really take account, but I think we had it. We, we, the word that we've used in the office is 100-ish. Uh, we, we don't really know. We didn't count. Um, but that just indicates to me that we, we had like 100 people show up last week and just said in some small way, uh, whether it was picking up trash or working at the Women's Center or uh, painting one of the family promise houses or making the homeless bags, that, that our community is important to us. And that's a, that's a culture changer uh, for us here. And that's the reason that we're doing that, that we want to take one Sunday out of the year that just tells our community, hey, it's not all about us and our gathering and what we do here. Um, we appreciate you and we want to love on you. And so if you didn't get the opportunity to participate and serve Sunday, I hope that you'll do that next year. Um, so you got 51 weeks or 50 weeks or so to prepare for that. Uh, maybe we'll choose to do it when it's a little bit cooler outside, although I don't have a lot of control uh, over that. Um, so we'll just, 
I know what we'll do. We'll do it in January, and we'll just have a snowplow Sunday. We'll just go shovel all our neighborhood driveways and that kind of stuff. Nobody would show up for that, not including myself. I would not show up for that either. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? We're going to continue in our, our Matthew series where we're working our way through the book of Matthew. We're about like six or seven weeks in now. And if you'll recall, we actually kind of did a little bit of the book, book of Matthew earlier this year because we did a sermon series um, <clears throat> uh, called The Good Life. Uh, where we uh, covered Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we actually covered some of chapter 6, but when we got to these verses, uh, 9 through 13, I just kind of skipped over those so we could come back to those uh, at another time. And these verses in 9 through 13 are what we affectionately refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And here's what's interesting about the Lord's Prayer to me is that millions and millions and millions of people know the Lord's Prayer. In fact, my guess is that many of you here, if we had some sort of test and we just lined up one by one and you had to say the Lord's Prayer in front of a group of judges, I I would guess the overwhelming majority of us in here, we might get a few words wrong like, you know, debts or trespasses. Which, Which version are we talking about? But I would guess most of you would know the Word's Prayer. But many of us, if we were to just be really honest this morning, many of us recite this prayer as a paragraph of empty words. Like sometimes these words don't have the meaning that I think that they should have. Like many of us don't really understand what's going on in the Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, it's interesting because it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that the Lord taught the disciples to pray, so I've never really understood that. This should probably be the disciples' prayer, but we call it, I don't want there to be any confusion if I start referring to this as the disciples' prayer, um, but, but so, so we call this the Lord's Prayer, and many of us don't really understand what's going on here. And what's amazing to me also is that the Lord gives us this prayer In the middle, if we were to go back a few verses and then kind of read after it and get the whole context of of which the Lord's giving us this prayer, we'd see that he's giving us this prayer in the middle of the text where he's talking about praying with meaning. Like he said, it's important that when we pray that we mean it, that we pray with meaning. And yet, here's this prayer that honestly I think has become the most oft-repeated, probably the most rote and routine prayer that humans pray. In fact, it was pretty funny. Last week, I, I, I like to binge things on Netflix from time to time, and my wife was out of town. Uh, I'm going to throw her under the bus. Well, some of you will love this, but she was at a stitching conference last week. She cross-stitches, and so she went to a stitching conference, and while she was in Cincinnati at a stitching conference, I binged a little bit on Netflix, and I am really jonesing for some football. Can I get an amen? I'm getting the shakes just talking about it. Like, I'm ready for football season to start. And so since she was gone, I just decided I would watch some documentaries on Netflix about football. And so one of the documentaries that I watched was about a high school football team. And at the end of every game, they would huddle up together with the coach, and the coach would lead them in the Lord's Prayer. 
And I found it, like I just, I was watching this documentary and every game they'd huddle up and I just started to chuckle because they would take a knee and it was, it was as if they were trying to see how fast they could say it and then like how angry and tough they could sound. And then they took a knee and they're like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come, will be done, earth is in them. And I was like, I was like, that's funny. Apparently only to me. <laughs> but that's my, my point is that it's this repeated prayer. Like those words are just flying out of the mouth of people who don't really understand what it is that they're praying. And so we want to take, take some time to look at this. Even if, you, even if you look at it through that lens of being rote and routine and just repeating words, uh, another thing that comes to mind would be like um, people who, for instance, say this as a penance for their sins, right? So like hey, for repentance for your sins, why don't you say 30-hour fathers? And so for many people, this is like, I'm sure that the idea behind that at, at one point was to get people to meditate on the words of the Lord's Prayer and just kind of glean some of that and apply it to their lives. But I think it's just become this thing that we say, kind of like how Bart Simpson writes sentences on a chalkboard, right? It's just meaningless. kind of a punishment. And so here's the deal. Jesus intended this prayer to be so much more. He didn't intend to give us a script of what to say, but rather he was trying to show us how to pray. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at this prayer this morning and show you what I mean by he was teaching us how to pray, not exactly what to say. And so if you've got your Bibles, look with me. Matthew chapter 6 will begin in verse 9. It begins like this. Jesus is teaching them, and he says, pray then like this. So he's been talking about prayer. If you could go back to verse 5, you would say he's, he begins to talk about prayer. He's talking about the importance of prayer and and, and, and not being showy in your prayers, and not being wordy in your prayers. And then it's like all of a sudden he goes, hey, while I'm just teaching you about this subject, why don't I just show you then how to pray? So then just pray then like this. And so he gives us after this an outline and kind of a content and priorities for our prayer. And here's what he does. He, the first thing he does after he says, then pray like this, is he he shows us who we're talking to. Look at that next phrase. He says, our Father in heaven. He, he reminds us who we're praying to when we pray. And in these four words, our Father in heaven, there's three, I think, three important observations. And the first thing I want you to notice is the word our. This is a corporate prayer. He, what he doesn't say is, hey, pray then like this, my Father like you were an individual, he says, no, pray then like this, our Father. There's this sense of community. This is a, a social prayer. It's as if we're all God's children and we're all part of the same big family. And so this is our prayer. This is how all of us should pray. Our Father. This is community. It's not singular, it's plural. The second thing is he tells us about our audience. He tells us about God. And here's what he says about God. He says, God's our Father. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to read the Bible from the beginning up to this point in, in Matthew, which is the first book of the gospel, you, you wouldn't see God referred to as Father in the Old Testament very often. In fact, it happens like on just a few occasions as he referenced as Father. 
But what happens is, is Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, and he begins to refer to God as the Father. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels refers to God as a father 195 times. This he's trying to change how we think about God. And in fact, the word used for father here in the original text, I don't want to geek out about it. You've probably heard this word before, but it's the word Abba. You've heard that word. There's a band called Abba. Many of you probably listen to Abba, right? And you know what this word means? This is a this is kind of a colloquialism. This is a, this intimate word. This is like a sitting around the kitchen table together kind of word for father. In essence, it's just like saying, our daddy. Our daddy who is in heaven. And so Jesus is breaking down these cultural barriers and he's trying to say, hey, God's not always all that far off. You, you can call him Father. You get to refer to him as daddy. And and there's a sense that all of us are God's children. I mean, we talk about this. I've preached about it before, how every human on the planet has the the stamp of God in them. We call that the imago Dei. We all bear the image. So there's this sense that we're all God's children. But there's this phrase that we get to call God daddy. That's reserved for people who've given their lives to Jesus. It's this special thing that we get to use. We get to call him daddy. That's who we're speaking with when we pray. You're speaking with daddy. And then the last word here that I want to point out is he uses the word heaven. And this is sort of dichotomous, right? Because he says, well, hey, you can pray to him as daddy, but I want you to know he's not from here. Like he's saying, hey, he's close, he's, he's daddy, but he's also from heaven, He's not from this earth that's somewhat limited and corrupt. He's from this pristine place called heaven. He's the God of the universe. And so at the same time, this is the wonder of prayer, the same time we're offering up our prayer to our daddy who is the king of all creation, who's far away in one sense, he's also daddy because he's near. And so he says, pray then like this, our corporate Father who is in heaven. And then from this point on, here's what he does. He gives us six things. There's six requests that happen in this prayer right after this. These are six things that we should want when we're praying. Six requests. Look at verse 9. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. He says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the repetition of the word your there. He says, your name, your kingdom, your will. Like these are three parallel sentences. Each one of them is this longing, this desire, a request that God be glorified. That's kind of a churchy word, but but basically that first and foremost, our focus would be on God. It's about you. It's God, we're praying to you. This is your kingdom, your will. Most of our prayers, I don't know about you, I mean, I'll say this about myself, but when I start off praying a prayer, I start off with my needs. I'm not always praying and putting God first and foremost. Most of the times when I pray, I'm like, God, hey, I don't feel well today. Can you help me feel better? God, I'm, I'm having trouble today in my relationship with, you know, my kids or my spouse or, you know, what, whatever. Like, God, I need this thing to happen. Like, I start off with my needs 
in this model prayer that Jesus is giving us, he's saying, no, put God, make him your focus. Make him your focus. It's about him. It's not about you. It's about him. Let's put him first. And so let me give you three things that we want to see happen here on earth among the people of this world in their relationship with God. First, when he says, hallowed be your name, here's here's what he's saying. What we want then is we want people to honor God's name. When he says, hallowed be your name, we want people to honor God's name. Hallowed, we don't use that in sentence very often, right? But that word means to treat as holy. It means to put into a special place, to have this reverence for. And so this is a request that we're making when we pray. It's a longing to see God treated as special, to see Him recognized as God and treated as only God deserves to be treated. And here's what's interesting about these first three requests. There's these two separate aspects to these requests. There's uh, one in the present and one in the future. And so when it comes to hallowed be, be your name, here's what he's saying. He says, there will be a time when God is finally treated holy by all of creation. Like one day, like that point's in the future, one day, there will be a day when God's finally treated holy by all of creation. So this prayer is a longing for that day to come when everyone in the world recognizes and honors God. But there's also a present aspect. This is a prayer that right now, among us, in this room, in our neighborhood, in our communities, in our cities, in our county, that more and more people would recognize who God is and would begin to treat Him the way that God deserves to be treated. So he says, Our Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, may people come to respect you and honor you as God. Then the second request is, will your kingdom come? And here's what we want when we say your kingdom come, is we want people to submit to God as king. We want people to submit to God as king. Once again, two aspects to this request, one in the present, one in the future. There will be a time when the kingdom of God is finally established and Jesus will rule and reign on this earth as king. That's what we believe as Christ followers, that he ascended, he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and that one day he will return. We can get in debates on, will it happen immediately? It was postmillennialism, millennialism a thousand year reign. Like, what's going to happen? Here's, I, I don't know either, so don't ask me. But here's what I believe. I just know that one day, Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth. That's the future aspect of this prayer, that we would want that to happen. In fact, John in the book of Revelation prays, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like, that's what we're praying for when we pray this. But there's a present aspect, a sense in which this kingdom of God that he's referring to has already come. This is what Jesus announced. When he came, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's now. For each person who has accepted Jesus as king. And so this prayer is a longing to see many other people also accept God as their king, and submit to his rule over their lives. And so he says, our Father, your kingdom come. May we quickly see you return and rule the earth just as you already rule in our hearts this very moment. And then here's the third thing that he prays. 
He says, your will be done. So this one's pretty simple, right? We want people to do God's will. When we pray this prayer, what we're praying is, is, hey, we want people, including ourselves and others, we want people to do God's will. Again, present aspect and a future aspect. There will be a time when God's plan's ultimately accomplished and when everyone will do His will. The Bible, in fact, says there's not going to be any sin in heaven. No one's going to violate His will. All of God's purposes one day will be accomplished. This prayer longs for that day in the future, but in the present, this prayer is a request that individuals will do God's will. In other words, it's a request that God would help us to obey His orders. It's a longing that God's purposes be accomplished in our own lives and that our lives would carry out God's directions. It basically, it's asking God to do what He wants. Isn't that funny? God, do what you want. And so often people think that prayer is about getting, to do, getting God to do things our way, but ultimately it's really about saying, Hey, God, what are you doing? Help me to do things your way. And so, our Father, your will be done. In other words, may your purposes be accomplished, and may we do what you want us to do. Those first three aspects focus on God. They ends with this phrase. I don't know if it's up there. It says, your will be done. And then he says, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's what I've been talking about, this sense of, hey, on earth now, as it one day will be in heaven. That phrase is referring back to these three requests. In heaven, God is honored. In heaven, that's where He rules. He's king. In heaven, everything happens according to God's will. And so when we pray, Jesus says that it's not about our names, our plans, our desires. It's about God's name, God's plan, and God's desires. And so the first three requests all have to do with making God first. This churchy word we use is He's preeminent. We want to make Him first. So when we begin to pray in our own lives, when you take a knee, if you have, I know some of you here have prayer closets, which is awesome. You can go back to verse 5 or 6. I think somewhere in there it refers to that. But when you begin to pray, what Jesus is saying is, hey, don't focus on you first. Focus on God first. Just praise Him. However you begin your prayers, you might begin with our Father. You might say, Heavenly Father. You might say, Dear God. You might be very conversational and say, Hey, yo, what's up, God? Well, like whatever, that's, that's not sacrilegious, by the way. He, he wants a relationship with you. And so however you begin your prayer, He says, Hey, begin your focus on Him. Keep God focused. And here's what he does. There's three more requests. And now, this is where things transition. They take a turn. They begin to focus uh, on us. I want you to notice the phrase, our. Okay, the first, th- the first few verses, it was your, your, your. Now it's our through the next few verses. The fourth request in the Lord's Prayer is that we want God to provide for us. We should ask God to provide for us. That's what he says when give us this day our daily bread. Now, bread here is definitely representative of food. It might even suggest, some scholars say, any of our material needs, like whatever is necessary for daily life. 
And the word daily here is interesting. I got to give you some context for this. Basically, I think this prayer is saying, hey, give us food for the coming day. Because in Jesus' times, laborers of the day would get paid a day's wages at the end of the day. That's pretty fascinating for us to think about. Most of us don't get paid on a daily basis. It's possible that some of you get paid on a daily basis, but you either get paid weekly or every other week or uh, monthly or whatever it might be. But in Jesus' time, if you went out and were working in the fields and farming or you were shepherding or uh, you made a table for somebody or whatever, like at the end of the day, like then the boss paid you up. Like you just got paid at the end of the day. So these people literally are used to living one day at a time. And so he's saying, hey, your focus is to, hey, give me what I need just for this day. Now, isn't that radically different from what you and I have grown up in? The culture that we've grown up in, right? I would guess everyone in this room has grown up in a a culture where our society teaches us the value of self-sufficiency, always being prepared for the future, having more than we need for today. And listen, there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong for preparing for the future. The Bible's just warning us not to trust in those things. So we're not going to be all right because we have savings, a 401k or a pension or insurance. We're going to be okay because we can ask God to give us what we need for today. That's why we're going to be all right. So do those things. He's just saying don't trust in those things. You have a God who wants to provide for what you need today. So ask him, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us each day just exactly what we need for that day. Here's a fifth request. Here's what we should want. We should want God to pardon us. We should want God to pardon us. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is where some of us grew up saying trespasses, right? Some people say sins, but he's talking about debts. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus probably talked in Aramaic. That that was the language of his people of the day. And in that culture, when they used the word debt, they were talking about sin. They weren't talking about financial debt. They were talking about sin, although that would be pretty awesome. I've got two kids that are, you know, like college age. They're going to incur a lot of debt. It'd be awesome to just pray like, hey, God, could you forgive my financial debt? Just make that all disappear. That'd be awesome. Like that's, he's not talking about forgiving our financial debt. This is a spiritual debt that he's talking about here. It's sin. And so you might be wondering, hey, wait a minute. I thought that when I trusted Christ that all my sins were forgiven. And so if that's true, then why do I need to pray to ask for God's forgiveness? It's true that when we put our trust in Christ, that God forgives everything that we have done and everything that we will do. He erases our punishment. He removes our debt. He pays the penalty. We are declared innocent. That is fantastic news, amen? But there's also another aspect of forgiveness. There's this restoration of our relationship with God. 
Like, let me put it to you like this. Here's what I think happens is that the moment you step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you've prayed that prayer, it doesn't matter. You've made that confession and you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Whenever that happened in your life, in that moment, your relationship with God was perfect. Like you pray that prayer, he's now your Lord and Savior, and things are perfect. Until the next time you sin, which for some of us, myself included, was probably five minutes after I entered into this new relationship. You you feel me? So in that moment, you enjoy this perfect relationship, and then we mess it up. Our sin becomes an obstacle between us and God the first time we sin after we've received Him as our Lord and Savior. But let me be clear. It isn't that God stops loving us when we sin. Right? God is not angry with us when this happens. You are not going to hell because you sin. It means that you're off track. It means that you've gotten off base. It means that you now have some unfinished business between you and God until we take a moment and we confess and we admit that we've sinned and claimed His forgiveness. That's what he's talking about here, the forgiving of our debts, of our sin. And listen, here's what he says in this last part. This is extremely important. Being forgiven should be accompanied by being forgiving. Like it's easy for us sometimes to receive that forgiveness from the Lord. Sometimes that's difficult because we carry baggage and guilt and shame, but most of us are a lot better at receiving that forgiveness than we are of being forgiving. And in fact, he says here, you can't do that. That's not possible. You can't be forgiven and be unforgiving. Think about that for a moment. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Like we're not forgiven because we forgive others. We are forgiven as we forgive others. You can't experience God's forgiveness as long as you won't forgive people who've wronged you. Not my words. Please don't send me an email. Write some comment card. Not my words. You take this up with God. You can't. You can't be forgiven if you won't forgive others. In fact, let's just skip down. This isn't part of the Lord's Prayer. This is kind of a footnote that Jesus gives in verses 14 and 15. Take a look at this. He finishes the Lord's Prayer, and here's what I think. I think he knew we would struggle with this one. So he's like, hey, pray for um, the forgiveness of your debts and that you'll forgive your debtors. And he finishes the prayer, and then it's like he goes, man, I think think they're going to struggle with this. So let me just... Let me punctuate this a little bit more in this footnote. Verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Like if we don't forgive others, if we're not willing to do that, you know what it shows? It shows that we don't understand our own sin. We don't understand how our sin grieves God if we're not willing to do this. 
We're prepared to receive God's forgiveness. We're just not ready to forgive someone else. And an unforgiving spirit means you're out of touch with God because God is forgiving. And so when He says, forgive us our debts, as, as we also have forgiven our debtors, He's saying, help us to forgive others just as you have forgiven us of so much more. We should want to pray that as difficult as it is to pray. And then here's the sixth thing. And the last thing in this list, we should want God to protect us. Look at verse 13. He says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so the word temptation here literally means a trial or a test. So this is a prayer that God wouldn't um, put us through circumstances or experiences that are designed to test us. Like we're saying, hey, God, please don't test us. That's the request here. God, please don't test us. Now, if you pray that, there's one problem with that kind of prayer is that we're praying for something that we know is inevitable. Like that's going to happen anyway. In fact, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, says in his book in James chapter 1, he says, hey, you're going to face trials of various kinds. I mean, he just tells us that, that this is going to happen to you. You're going to face tests. You're going to face trials. In fact, James goes on to say, blessed is the person who stands up under those trials and under those tests, who perseveres through that kind of testing. But listen, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't or couldn't ask God to spare us from tests and trials and temptation. In fact, I recall on the night before he was arrested, Jesus was praying in the garden. And what did he pray? And he said, Lord, uh, if there's another way for us to do this without going to the cross, boy, I sure would prefer that. Even Jesus himself said, I don't want to do this. It's okay to ask God to spare us from trials and tests. But if we pray that, we've also got to be ready for him to answer with a no. Jesus said, please spare me if there's another way. And God moved forward with his plan. Jesus says that the bottom line is this, God. If this is what has to happen at the end of the day, your will be done. Not my will be done. Your will be done. We can and we should ask God to spare us from testing, but we need to be ready to go through it anyway. And in fact, I think that's the meaning of the second part of this verse where he says, but deliver us from evil. In other words, this request is saying, hey God, please don't make me go through this test because I could fail. Like I don't want to go through this thing because I think I could mess it up. But if in your wisdom you decide that I need to go through this, that I need to be tested and he says, then at least please save me from the enemy. Like, save me from Satan. In fact, some of the texts say, don't just say evil in general, they say the evil one. Like, don't let him overpower me. R rescue me from the devil who's always looking for a way to trap me. And so when he says, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're saying, protect us from difficult experiences. But if we must face them, then please protect us 
from the enemy. And then finally, the Lord's Prayer ends with these words, often ends with these words, that you won't find in the text here, but we often end that prayer with, what, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so that you will notice, if you have one of your journals this morning, or maybe the text that you're reading doesn't include that, some translations include that in brackets. It wasn't part of the original prayer that Jesus prayed. You know what it was? Here's what I think. I think some scribe who was copying the manuscript down over the the years didn't like that Jesus' prayer ended so abruptly, like there's no finish there. You know, you know how it is. Have you ever been in a group prayer and you're like, hey, let's just all take turns praying? Like in a small group or with some of your buddies or whatever, everybody takes turns praying. And if you don't designate the person that goes last, you just kind of do this popcorn thing and everyone's praying that you're just sitting there uncomfortably waiting for someone to like finish this thing. It's like we're praying, you're praying, you're praying, everyone's just kind of like, who's going to end this thing? Like it apparently... That goes all the way back to Scripture. Jesus doesn't end it with some sort of customary ending. And so I think some scribe was like, I don't like the way this prayer ends. So I think I'm just going to jot this in here. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And listen, there's nothing wrong with what he wrote. Here it's just part of the original text. But, but if that's all we receive from it, like we've missed the essence of what it's all about. This is so much more than a prayer that should be recited among people, that should be part of our liturgy, should be just something that we bow our heads and do out of memory or routine. This prayer offers an in-depth look at the very aspects of prayer that we all need to embrace and that we all need to practice. And so how do we pray? What should we pray? Here's the way we ought to pray. We tell God that we want people to honor His name. We tell God that we want people to submit to Him as King, including ourselves. We tell people we want them to do God's will. We want to do God's will. And then we tell God we want Him to provide for us. We want Him to pardon us. And we want Him to protect us. This is how He taught us to pray. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus taught us, His followers, to pray. Amen? Amen.